I think that there's big messages in there about the scale at which human impacts have affected the oceans. Mm. And reef sharks are just one of the groups that have suffered as a result of our activities. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to episode 15 of Science Town. In early 2020, researchers from around the world wrapped up the biggest shark counting exercise ever undertaken. The result? Some reefs continue to sustain large populations of apex predators, while others have lost them entirely. In this episode, we speak with the people most in the know about global reef shark populations and what these canaries in the coal mine might be telling us about the state of our global oceans. Enjoy. The really exciting thing about this study is the scale at which we were able to get collaborators from all over the world, representing huge, huge coverage and a very good representation of reefs in different parts of the world. And it just gives us a better picture of what's happening at levels that you really can't do with just a few people in, in just a few places. That's Michael Behrman. He's the director of the Red Sea Research Center at KAUST. So describe some of the places where this was done. I mean, this was a truly global effort. It spans from French Polynesia and other places in the South Pacific. Of course, Australia is well represented. Lots of places in the Indian Ocean contributed data and the Caribbean. So it, it's a it's really hit a lot of the key areas that people do work in, that people do research in, both on the positive side and the side that could use some work in terms of reef shark populations. So we get a better balanced picture. We didn't just use the sites that have lots of sharks and we didn't just focus on the sites that have low numbers of sharks, but we really wanted to see that span from low to high and get good regional ideas of what was happening in various places so that we could look a little bit more specifically and try to have an understanding of which places were doing well compared to the rest of their region. Mm -hmm. And that gives you insight into which places have the most potential for improving the population levels and not just maintaining what's there. How different are those ecosystems? And then if one place is badly missing uh, reef sharks, what, what did we learn from this research that we can then apply to those spaces? It's a really great question. If you just jump in the water in a random spot in French Polynesia, you're going to see huge variability in what the reefs look like. You've got some places that have loads and loads of corals and lots of biodiversity and lots of life on those reefs that's very visible. You could you know, take the boat 10 minutes in another direction, jump in the water and find a barren landscape with very few you know, obvious living things there. And so that's one of the hallmarks of reefs in general. They're patchy habitats, they're highly variable. 
And that's one of the reasons that you need a lot of sampling in a regional scale in order to level out those variations and, and have a pretty good picture at a whole region scale. Then what can you learn from that is if you can see opportunities for improvement and you have some understanding of what has caused the shark populations to be reduced in a particular area, then we can make recommendations and say, listen, if, if we could just solve this one problem or introduce this one regulation or introduce this approach, we think that's the best value for our effort and see the maximum amount of increase as a result of that. Give us a picture of the contraptions that were built to actually make these observations. They're sort of interesting. In a way, they seem a bit low-tech, uh, surprisingly. Why low-tech and why so effective at the same time? The boxes that we use for these camera systems are certainly intended to be low-tech because we want them to be able to be easily built with relatively common materials. They should be fairly easy to move around, fairly easy to assemble. So they really are low tech, but that makes it more accessible and allows us to get increased coverage and have more cameras put out in more places. So imagine it's, it's a frame in the shape of a cube with a couple of legs on it to stabilize it on the bottom. And inside that frame, you mount a simple camera. The most common cameras used, I think, in the study, I'm sure, were GoPros. The other thing that you need attached to this frame is imagine one long arm sticking out in front of the camera, and at the end of that arm is a small bag, like a mesh box, and inside that box it's full of some ground-up, stinky, oily fish, preferably something local that something like sharks would be attracted to. And so that's the bait, which forms the first part of the acronym BRUVS, so baited remote underwater video systems. The bait is there to increase the likelihood of us seeing these animals in the videos because sharks are naturally rare. Even in areas where sharks are common, mm. they're still there are very few places where you jump in the water and immediately see sharks. Because we use the same amount of bait and we consistently apply this process, it still allows us to compare among places. So we're not so concerned about reporting back exact values, how many sharks are on this reef versus that reef. That That's a little bit less interesting to us than just saying, the relative comparison, there's three times as many sharks over there, there's 10 times as many sharks in this region. That's the type of scaling that we're using with this approach. And I imagine if no sharks show up, which was the case in some of these uh, instances, that's really telling. H how often did that happen and, and what does that mean? There were too many places where we didn't okay. see any sharks at all. Uh, we know that they should be on all of these systems, even if they're in low numbers. Each of those places has hundreds of hours of footage or many dozens of hours of footage. I think in total, the places where we had zero sharks at all still total over a thousand hours of video footage. So wow. that's a lot of sampling effort to see no sharks. 
this feels like a perfect uh, case for ingesting thousands of hours of footage and uh, feeding it to a supercomputer, if you guys consider doing that. We have, and we've worked with some of the computer vision specialists here mm. at Cal, some machine vision specialists that are working on ways to automate that process and say, here are the frames you need to look at because here is what I think is a shark. Mm. It's certainly possible. And I, I think that five or 10 years from now, someone's going to look back at this and say, can you believe somebody looked at 15,000 hours <laughs> of footage to make this paper when it could have all been done with the, with the machine just as easily? What were the then assumptions of why the sharks weren't showing up? So why sharks might be so depressed in certain places is due to a variety of potential factors. So <laughs> overfishing is certainly a problem in certain parts of the world where there's direct targeted fishing for sharks. In other places, there are shark deterrents like nets that have been put up to keep bathing or swimming areas safe. <laughs> And those can have an impact on the shark populations. In other places, the effects may be indirect. <laughs> so it may be because the overfishing problem is not actually targeting sharks, but it's targeting all the food that those sharks would eat. And so if you remove all the potential prey for those shark populations, you're going to eventually see an impact on the sharks themselves, <laughs> even if you never directly go after a single shark. We have to rely a lot on the local knowledge of our collaborators mm -hmm. to understand in each region what the particular problem is and therefore what can be done to alleviate those stressors or to help rebuild the shark populations. How common is it that you get to do such a big global uh, bit of research. Is this common for you guys? So you look to do lots of them or is this uh, a very unique sort of model for research? As far as a model for research goes, it's increasingly common. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's increasingly important because some of the phenomena that we're trying to understand and the challenges that we're trying to address are really global in scale. Right. And so in order to to have really good pictures for those scale of pressures and the scale of problems, we need to see far more places than even just you know a handful or even just a dozen sites. In an ideal situations like this study, the individual pieces are still really useful at the local level, at the individual team's level. So nobody's lost anything by mm -hmm. contributing to a, a larger study. Um, specifically, was this unique for reef shark populations? I think so. I don't, I'm not aware of any study that's put together so much data from so many places with a standardized common approach. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's part of what helps make this one so powerful in this specific case. I think that there's big messages in there about the scale at which human impacts have affected the oceans mm -hmm. and Reef sharks are just one of the groups that have suffered as a result of our activities. I think that the, the big takeaway is that our activities, even if we're not directly going after the sharks, have flow-on effects that eventually impact their populations. So we have to be looking at what can be done and what works on a local scale as opposed to what needs to be addressed at a really global scale. Michael, thank you for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure.
Listening to Science Town. Something that is just really exciting about this study is is not only the sheer size of it that they had right fifteen thousand individual surveys of which we contributed just about one hundred and twenty four. That's Darcy Bradley. She's the director of the Oceans Program at the Environmental Market Solutions Lab at the University of California, Santa Barbara. But it's also really about the methodology itself, which is the fact that a a baited remote underwater video survey is just a very standard method. So a big problem we have in in surveying and tracking what's happening in underwater ecosystems is that they are tricky places to work. We are not naturally supposed to be there. So we need to don all kinds of equipment um, and doing all of those things, it just creates a lot of bias in the data. So it's a person counting fish or counting sharks, typically. Right. Um, that person not only is going to do it differently than another person, they might see different things, they might be drawn to different things. Uh, they're also, might just record things a little bit differently because they're underwater and finagling with gear. Um, and also, animals underwater might react to this other very large animal, a human, approaching them or being in their general space. And so this, this can introduce different biases into, into this observation data and underwater visual census data. And so ABRUV is just a beautiful design tool because it is just a video and you just drop it in the water and you leave. And so it's just surveying the underwater world as it would be. It's attracting fish very slightly by having bait there so that predators can come into the survey screen and so that you can actually see just who is hanging out in this area that you're surveying in a very standardized way. And we really get to unpack what's in that survey once we get back to the lab. And that for us is actually kind of where the fun began because we had the great privilege of getting to survey one of the most undisturbed um, and really most pristine coral reef ecosystems on our planet. So we were working in Palmyra Atoll, which is a U.S. fish and wildlife refuge. It's a marine protected area closed to fishing for over 20 years. And as a result, it just has these very robust shark populations in particular and general predator populations. And so for us, setting that video up on our computer screens Um, was just so much fun because then we get to see what was happening when we weren't there underwater. And it was, we just got to witness these coral reefs that were full of life. They were filled with sharks. They were filled with other predators, jacks and groupers and snapper. And of course, that was not the case in, in many of the surveys that were done throughout this study. So we really, we got to survey the healthy end of this spectrum and so many people, that was just not the experience that they had. When you pull that footage down, what are you seeing and how are you going about counting to your point to reduce the the biases in the review of the footage? Sure, so there are some specialized software that have been developed explicitly for the purpose of reviewing video footage, this underwater video footage in particular. And the idea is that they allow you to load in your video and and start to annotate it in, in a standardized way. So this BRUV system, it's either being dropped from a boat into a marine environment or it's being manually placed by a diver in more sensitive habitats, like where there's high coral cover 
or potentially a wall, so you don't want it just to fall off into the deep. And once that survey starts, then what we're looking for is we're looking for sharks coming into frame. And so it was our goal in this to record every shark that we saw enter that field of view. The instant that we see an animal, we hit the pause button on the video and we record that is the time that it first arrived. So we call it T arrived, time of first arrival. We then keep watching. If we see another species for the first time, we do the same thing. So the goal in, in watching these videos is to record not only the time they first show up, but also the maximum number of individuals in a single video frame. These annotation, this annotation software allows us to click on those individuals, identify them to the species level, and then we keep updating our information as we go on. We also record behavioral information in our in our surveys where we actually record when those sharks or any species comes and bites the bait. So we have these three standard uh, pieces of information for every species that we see. And again, in this global study, the focus was on reef sharks. Um, but it, within each of these survey domains, individual researchers and research groups like the one that I was involved in are actually reviewing this for a whole variety of different purposes. So we are recording over 30 different species doing all of these things. So you can imagine it gets pretty hectic recording all this information. The species are flying in and flying out and swimming over to the bait swimming off stream and showing up in, you know in a group a small group and then individuals and so it's actually a process that took us a lot of concentration and and was just a really fun thing to get to do reported seeing very few to none um, in the you know reef shark uh, population in a 60 minute period how, how many sharks roughly would you say you saw and what was the what was the sort of tail end most extreme uh, amount that you saw we really represent what you know what an unfished system looks like so what a system looks like that that doesn't have the human impacts that are really the highlight of this study as you mentioned 20 percent of reefs surveyed had not a single shark, which is just staggering. That is not statistic that we want to see out of a study like this. In our surveys, because we were in this predator-dominated atoll, we saw something quite different. Of the two dominant reef shark species there, which are the gray reef sharks and the black tip reef sharks, we would see um, around about four. And so imagine four reef sharks that are about five feet in that kind of space. That's actually a lot of reef sharks. The most we saw is in one of the sites on the island. It's a high energy site. It's on the tip of the island. The currents are just raging there. There's so much marine life. I think we saw up to 10 of an individual species in a single video frame, um, which was very exciting and, and just a fun thing to be able to record. Did you guys uh, collect much or, or observe much interesting behavior of other species um, you know, indirectly linked to the, the shark activity? 
part of our ability to review this footage is that we worked within the lab of my mentor at the time, Dr. Jen Cassell, and with she had a team of undergraduates that helped mm. us watch these videos and helped us analyze them and annotate them. And one of those undergrads actually uh, did a follow-up study because of some really interesting behavior we saw with moray eels. And these moray eels were by far the most vicious attackees on the reef and they would really encircle our bruv unit and you would just see the slithering eel body all over the video screen and they would just really attack that bait canister and so that was something we hadn't seen before and and then there were some interesting interactions between mores and other species that would come close to that bait canister. Um, would you say that you came away with any conclusions um, about marine protected areas? So Palmyra is certainly a success story when it comes to marine protected areas. It has a just a healthy population. It has a high a high coral cover, a very intact food web. There are lots of predators. There's lots of everything else in that system. In these surveys, we were recording also charismatic megafauna like manta rays and eagle rays and sea turtles. We saw lots of those. We were recording species of conservation concern. It is a place as well that has also just been an incredibly resilient ecosystem. We've had some of the worst coral bleaching throughout the Pacific in the last five plus years. And although Palmyra has experienced some bleaching, the corals have largely recovered. It is certainly one of those places that you go to as evidence of when when ecosystems are given a chance, they will just thrive. And so it is a big sign of hope for what protection, if it is well enforced, can actually do to our marine environment. I, I really feel for the researchers who worked in those 20% of surveys, which, you know, we're talking about 15,000 surveys. So that's 3,000 surveys yeah. where you're not seeing a single shark. These are coral reef systems where there should be reef sharks. They are part of that system. So to not see a single one is just incredibly disheartening and really shows us that that there's a lot of room for management to do a lot better. And that was something I was really excited about to see that the lead authors of this global study, that was the goal to say, we can do better. Here's a roadmap for actually putting better management in place so that we can make some of these highly degraded reefs look a little bit better and look like some of the other ones that we saw that we know reefs really really should be looking like. What's the future of this research then? Um, Will there be an ongoing sort of annual or every decade assessment of this kind? What's your sense for that? So I think as a starting point, this effort just Mm -hmm. created one of the most rich data sets in the world, in the marine environment, certainly, but pot- potentially just throughout ecology generally. And that I think we'll, we'll be able to just launch and inspire so much really interesting work, both in shark ecology, but also in motivating conservation efforts and really driving better management and better management interventions to try to rebuild shark populations in all of those reefs where they become absent. Well, Darcy, thank you so much for making time for us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for getting in touch and good luck. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. Are you optimistic, pessimistic? It's difficult to say. 
while there was certainly a lot of concerning results, I think, from the fin print surveys, there was also optimistic results in the sense that there are strategies that can make a difference. That's Yanis Papastamatio. He's an assistant professor at Florida International University. One of the problems I've always, always had, you know, with marine conservation is we always focus on the negatives, which there's lots of, and don't emphasize some of the positives. But the fact is we have had positive results. You know, yeah. there are examples of shark populations uh, coming back or starting to do better, and not just in remote places. I mean, we can look at, for example, you know, on the east or the west coast of the U.S. and see examples of, of certain shark populations that seem to be coming back. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think that, you know, we do have the opportunity to make things better. What wider ecological implications does a healthy or not healthy shark uh, shark population point to? Um, it could be corals, it could be fish, as you've seen. A very good question that's not easy to answer. Do healthy reefs need sharks or do sharks need healthy reefs? And I think in general, yeah. if you have large shark populations, it means conditions are likely to be pretty good on that reef. In fact, one of the uh, follow-up questions from the FinPrint study is trying to understand what resources do these animals need to survive at these population sizes on a reef? So what forage base do they need to have a healthy shark population? Because again, it's not only about protecting sharks, if there's not enough for them to eat, then just protecting them isn't going to cause the population sizes to go back up if they're already at carrying capacity. So uh, what resources do they need? What do they need from the reef? Uh, How does, for example, coral come into it? Are all complex questions that we're still sort of just starting to scratch the surface. What policy implications uh, come with the findings? Are we talking about less tourism? Are we talking about less fishing? And, And what is the biggest human impact on these populations of sharks well i mean the places that were successful you know in the sense of large shark populations were were the you know the areas with the most and the largest spatial scale of protection so shark sanctuaries very large marine protected areas for example uh, all do seem to do pretty well you had healthy shark populations in there so uh, there's a recent study looking at how large an MPA would you need to protect shark populations and potentially how you could have multiple smaller MPAs that could benefit shark populations. And so I think it can be done. It just requires careful research into the spatial ecology of these animals and, and what areas they need to use. One thing I dislike hearing is just a number being thrown out about how much of the world's oceans we need to protect. We could protect 30% of rubbish area that no sharks use, right. and that's not beneficial. Mm-hmm. So it's not just 30%. It's 30% of habitats that are good and that you know will be beneficial to these animals. So I think it, we've got to not just think of a, a number, but also in terms of habitat quality. How many sharks would be in the ocean if we weren't doing things that they don't like or that that drive them away? Would the ocean be um, sort of homogeneously full with species or or do they tend to um, gather in certain places and then there's large swaths of ocean that have nothing? What's We've only started really surveying with modern scientific methods anyway, pretty recently, long after effects of fishing would have 
being felt. This sort of field of historical ecology is, is always quite interesting to me where, where you try and find uh, ways to infer what population sizes were a long time ago, whether that's really old pictures, you know, and, and you know, I come from Greece, which, you know, in the Mediterranean and, and the chance of seeing a shark there is, is pretty low. In fact, all my time to die, I've never seen a shark in Greece. But if you read accounts from the Greek-Persian wars, the historians were talking about how when the uh, wars at sea were happening and these ships were sinking, the men were being torn apart by sea monsters, which were obviously sharks. <laughs> so that's, you know, incredible to think that at some point there must have been quite a lot of sharks in, in Greek waters. But it just gives you some idea what might have been. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Crossing Disciplines and Crossing Borders, Science Town. Reefs or the islands that are pretty far offshore are going to have less fishing pressure because they're more difficult to get to. That's Royal Hardenstein, PhD student in the Reef Ecology Lab in the Red Sea Research Center at Kaust. Right. They take more time to get to, you know, it's it's more of an investment for fishermen to get out there. Right. Um, and that was the best, about the closest we could do to, you know, fished and unfished. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we picked Alif because it's an area that we survey quite frequently. We're down there quite a bit, and we're hoping to eventually look at it in comparison to some other work that is going on in Alif. The hope was, okay, we've already got a pretty good base of data for mm-hmm. Alif, so it makes sense for us to do brubs there. So we're not the first people to do brubs in the Red Sea. Um, another member of the Reef Ecology Lab, Dr. Julia Spate, um, mm-hmm did quite a bit of work on bruvs. She was already kind of raising the alarm bells that shark populations in the Red Sea aren't doing great. I tried to pick reefs that were previously surveyed by Julia. Um, And then, of course, the other reefs that I picked were right here off of Kaust. Um, It makes a lot of sense to survey our home reefs, know what's going on here. Um, And so uh, most of the sharks that we got off of here were at a very far uh, reef and, and then again, it was just little stuff like white tip reef sharks, the little dinky guys who aren't going to do anything to right, you. Right, right. So, so what sort of funny behaviors or things did you guys end up seeing? Um, I, I have to say I've, I've never felt more lucky to have like hands and thumbs than <laughs> watching these, like to a degree, watching these poor sharks and eels just go at it to try to get this food. I'm sitting there going... I got thumbs. I could have gotten that out. Like <laughs> there was, um, in particular, some of the stuff that I I thought was pretty cool it wasn't necessarily shark related. It was it was eels because okay. we get a, a ton of moray eels, um, and it was footage off of here. I was downloading it late at night because I did a bunch of days in a row, and so I was downloading it late at night. And I seriously thought it was like a sleep deprived fever dream when I saw it. But um, you see all of these little snappers like feeding at the basket and this one eel just like comes up and he's kind of looking and all of a sudden just like in a split second like grabs one of the snappers and drags it like back into his cave and all the other snappers just like pause a second and they're like nah and go back to eating and so i'm watching this and i'm like they don't even care one of their like jerry's gone and you don't care <laughs> it was so yeah there was there was a couple of you know little little sharks with attitude trying to get bait yeah. 
one of the interesting things that you'll see usually is there's some there's some fish that show up pretty quickly and yeah. uh, i think a lot of them tend to be ones that are pretty opportunistic or like scavenger mm-hmm. kind of things um and then some of your shark species kind of like trickle in a bit more um your bigger apex predator sharks that might take a bit more time to show up because it it might not necessarily be exactly the food that they're usually going for but then right. eventually they're like oh that doesn't smell so bad i'll go over and check that out sounds like an easy meal the cool thing was we actually got a pretty big nurse shark that showed up mm. um the visibility on that bruv isn't great but when when the nurse shark runs into the camera you can tell he's a pretty big guy <laughs> um we definitely got more of those guys than i expected yeah like I said, they're not the apex predator. Oh, yeah. What an awesome shark. But at this point in the Red Sea, I'm happy to see any shark. Okay. So <laughs> so it's pretty rare then. When I first got to the Red Sea, it was probably uh, six or seven months until I saw my first shark mm-hmm. on a dive. And it wasn't for lack of diving. You know, it's usually one or two gray reefs on a weekend dive trip kind of a thing. I've, okay. I've seen one tiger shark in the Red Sea. It's unfortunate. They're out there, but yeah. uh, they're kind of skittish because they are being fished or, or what's your sense for that? One of the ideas that's brought up in this publication is functional extinction. And I don't necessarily think we're quite at that point yet, right. but I think if nothing is done about shark fishing in the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Will maybe not Sudan. They they their shark populations might be fine, but the Saudi shark populations are likely connected to the Sudanese populations, but I is it enough? So so one of the big points, right, is that at almost 20% of reefs there were there were no sharks or hardly any sharks. That doesn't mean they're extinct. That doesn't mean that they're completely gone. Mm-hmm. It just means that they're in such low numbers that they're no longer serving their function in an ecosystem. So sharks in general kind of keep some of the lower uh, your big apex predator sharks right they keep some of your lower levels of fish in check Mm -hmm. um which can be important for things uh like reef recovery and if we're at the point of functional extinction now then now is the time to pay attention and try to do something to change. What does it mean to be a researcher and and see a largely empty aquarium? Yeah. First of all, it makes it makes me really appreciate when I go to places where there are good healthy shark populations. So mm-hmm. I uh, was lucky enough to go to a conference that was in Tahiti in French Polynesia. And while I was there, I did a shark dive because I, w- I wanted to see some big tiger sharks. It was insane. There were black tip reef sharks everywhere. There were tiger sharks. There were lemon sharks. 
there were nurse sharks. There were, I think it was like, I saw seven species of sharks in, right. in one dive. Right. And it wasn't like I had to try, <laughs> you know. Um, that to me was crazy. I was mm-hmm. like, this is a dream. <laughs> like, the study kind of um, puts forward the idea uh, mm-hmm. And as a complete uh, novice to the topic, it struck me that much of the data and much of the knowledge seems to come from fishing um, before uh, these Brub studies uh, started happening. Typically, with a lot of fish species that are relatively easily fished, yeah, uh, there's there's kind of two ways that you can get data, um, and those are your fisheries dependent methods and fisheries independent methods okay. it's things like you know people spending time out on a fishing vessel and looking at the bycatch or if a shark comes up they you know do a spaghetti tag which are these smaller tags mm-hmm. that just have an identification number you put it into the shark and then if it's caught again you have that record or, you know, you take genetic samples from sharks that come up from that. Or I think in some places it's required for ships to keep track of mm. to what their bycatch is. Also, because, you know, they have to record where the ship's location is. You can look at, okay, at this location when they did this fishing set, this is what they caught. You can also do fisheries dependent methods like fish market surveys. So you go to the fish market, what's there? There's some researchers who have been doing amazing work going to just, you know, random little tiny fish markets in different parts of the world and sometimes mm-hmm. they show up and here's a species of sharks we shark we didn't know existed or we didn't know was here wow. because you know there's just nobody surveying those kind of random middle of nowhere fish markets yeah or for example a lot of the deep sea vessels that are now starting to fish deeper and deeper um there's researchers that will join those trips and look at deep sea sharks you know the start of using bruvs really gave a additional way to get more data i was happy that we could contribute something from the red sea because we're the only location right now in the red sea that was able to contribute to the study and so i think although we might not reflect sunni's populations or egyptian shark populations we can give an idea of what's going on here in the red sea Mm. so what does it mean for you as a scientist mm-hmm. to be published in nature does that immediately um, make you a, a celebrity like are there is there paparazzi outside the window like well, okay. uh, no paparazzi yet uh-huh. yeah. it's really cool and i was so happy to be included on the paper i mean i put a lot of work into putting out the bruvs here all around this was a massive investment on time on, on everybody's part and so it's really great to be in a situation where it's super inclusive and everybody who put in so much time and effort is getting recognized and it's a massive global study it's the kind of thing that should be published in nature in in general my outlook on research is i just want to help people put good research out i just i'm such a fan of the little guy (laughs) i'm like yes Do it. Do your science. You're doing so well. Cutting edge tech, science and startup culture. 
Science Town. My name is Steve Kessel, and I'm the Director of Marine Research at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, USA. Here through um, the Shedd Aquarium, we uh, focus our research efforts on the marine side in the Bahamas. And there's a, a few reasons behind that. We're obviously based here in Chicago. One is we have a long-standing relationship with the Bahamas, both in terms of sustainable fish collections. So Shedd Aquarium has been collecting uh, fish and you know vertebrates for display here in Chicago for many decades. I think it goes back all the way to those 1930s or 40s. So we kind of have a responsibility to the ecosystems of the Bahamas because those have been our champion animals here in Chicago to connect people to the marine environments. Beyond that, uh, we've been doing research in the Bahamas for about three decades with uh, different partners in the Bahamas, and those include the Bahamas National Trust, which oversees all the marine parks and, uh, and terrestrial parks and marine protected areas in the Bahamas. The Department of Marine Resources that set all the fisheries regulations and also the Best Commission that more oversees the terrestrial side of things in the Bahamas. And those relationships have been very fruitful in the sense of we've been able to work directly with our partners in those organizations to develop our research programs. And our research program overall is an ecosystem approach based on economically important species. So I personally have a research program on sharks and rays. Hmm. And one thing um, we've been doing as a big need for them is assessing their shark populations through a series of techniques, including bruvs. Bruvs was something that were always on the docket for us here at Shed. All the bruv footage and data we provided to FinPrint for this global study was focused in the Bahamas and particularly in the Exuma Keys and the Berry Islands. That came about from a long-standing relationship with the uh, global FinPrint partners at Florida International University, Dr. Chapman in particular, Dr. Damien Chapman. There's lots of different research groups going out and collecting this data, and you probably saw from the paper there was over 15,000 hours of footage that was analyzed for this study, which right. is a monumental amount of video footage. We were able to use our incredible volunteer base and team lab here to help process these videos. That That's great for us uh, and for FinPrint, but it's also great for the volunteers, it kind of gives them the opportunity to contribute to a global assessment of reef shark populations. <laughs> I'd just like to thank all our volunteers that spent their time to help analyze this footage. It really helped the project immensely. What are the big takeaways for the Caribbean? I, I know that some places in the study uh, globally uh, were seen as dead spots or, or, you know, no sharks were seen. So where, where does the Caribbean fall in that spectrum from healthy to um, sort of really deplete? Yeah, it, it's, it's very variable throughout the Caribbean, which is a little surprising because it's kind of a quite connected area. Now, we were working in the Bahamas, and so the Bahamas is a very, very shark-abundant and biodiverse region, and that's mm. really down to their very, very progressive conservation and management measures. In 1993, they banned the use of commercial longlines and gillnets, which are incredibly destructive uh, commercial fishing gears for shark populations, whether they're being targeted or whether they're being caught by a catch. If you longline and gillnet in a region, you're going to kill a lot of sharks. They went then a step further in 2011, designating the entire waters of the Bahamas, and that's an area of about 630 thousand square kilometers of the northwest atlantic their economic zone and their national waters are all designated as a shark sanctuary so it's mm. illegal to kill sharks anywhere within that large expanse of ocean so it's a real safe haven for sharks mm -hmm. 
what we saw or what Pinprint found across the Caribbean is big variability in reef shark populations. And it highlighted two things. One, that reef sharks on the whole, especially the kind of smaller species of reef sharks, not the more transient ones like the tiger sharks and hammerheads and things like that, reef sharks are generally quite side attached. So fishing regulations and conservation in close proximity to the areas you're surveying have a big influence over the abundance and biodiversity of those species. And then the second thing there, the fishing um, practices and the management and conservation for sharks in those specific countries in the Caribbean have a huge influence over the abundance and biodiversity of reef shark species. So for example, the Bahamas is quite a big you know, island nation within, within this region had very, very abundant sharks, but uh, for example, Jamaica, not too uh, far away, almost no sharks to be seen. Um, and even within this study, is to compare directly uh, different nations within this region that have different fishing regulations and how they're performing in terms of their shark population, or how, how, what is the status of their shark population, how does that relate to their management of fisheries regulations. do we then help these dwindling, uh, if they are shark populations, bring them back and, and, and preserve them? Well, one thing that was really great about this paper is it showed us for reef sharks around the globe, this is where they are abundant, this is where we have a high biodiversity, and this is what's working. Then mm-hmm. on the flip side, this is where they are very sparse, this is where the population is in real trouble. And and this is maybe why, because of X, Y, and Z, you know, different fisheries, things like that. What's been shown over and over in, in many studies is that sharks are important for our ocean ecosystems, and they have broader effects. So if that country has any kind of fishery outside of shark fishery that they rely on for economic gain, you know, for their economy, then the sharks are almost certainly an important part of sustaining that other population of animals. Beyond that, the Bahamas is a great example of how sharks can be a benefit from a tourism perspective. There is a huge economic driver for the Bahamas from directly from shark-related dive tourism. So they can be a benefit both in terms of keeping that nation's ecosystems healthy, but also attracting tourists from the U.S. and from other parts of the world to come to that nation and spend their money into that economy. So. I think that's really what's really great about this study is the deeper analysis of the techniques that are working and what's right for one country in terms of policy and management might not be suitable for another country, but it definitely at least gives people options and hopefully will promote um, increased communication between those nations to help better protect their sharks. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. No worries. It's been a real pleasure. 
Thanks to everyone who took part in this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Arias, and Julie West. I'm Nicholas DeMille. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.